Almost 30 years before the opening of the tomb of Tutankhamun and the fabled Curse of the Pharaohs was unleashed upon an excitable population, rumours and stories of another curse attached to an ancient object have been weaving its way into myth and legend as a complicated tangle of truth and fabrication. The anger of the priestess of Amun-Ra has links to several high-profile deaths and even the sinking of the Titanic. It was potentially responsible for thousands of deaths in the few decades since its discovery, far overshadowing the famous curse of the boy king in scope, even if it would never quite match it in fame. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark Histories, Season 7, Episode 7. I'm Ben, your host, as always... This week's episode is a really good fun one. I really enjoyed putting this episode together. It was really challenging to dig through and sort myth and folklore from the actual facts, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. So I hope you enjoy it too. We're going to just jump straight into it because why not? This is Acquisition 22542, The Unlucky Mummy. In 1922, Howard Carter peered through a small crack in an ancient stone door and told the world of the wonderful things that lay inside. It wasn't any old stone door, but the inner doorway to the antechamber inside the tomb of Tutankhamun and one of the greatest archaeological discoveries of all time. The elusive pharaoh had been the subject of an intense search for almost seven years and its discovery ignited popular imagination around the world, creating a craze that would come to be known as Tut Mania, as headlines printed tales of gold, jewels, ancient kings and lost worlds. As press outlets scored exclusivity deals, those without the rights tapped into the market with stories of their own creation. In all the excitement, tales of Pharaoh's curses were a popular bit of copy, guaranteed to sell papers, and before long, the trope was wheeled out in relation to the tomb as rumours and fabrications emerged and the curse of King Tut began to take shape. As it happened, the general public were already fairly well primed to accept such stories, and tales of cursed tombs were not a new phenomena. The journalists of the day were simply riffing on a much older concept that had emerged largely in the 19th century, a product of colonial expansion that facilitated a form of Egyptomania which had gripped Western audiences, manifesting in literature, architecture and art. As the French and later the British swept across Egypt, exporting knowledge, news and ancient artefacts, people back at home dressed in white robes to attend Egyptian-themed parties. Egyptian-inspired architecture popped up all over European and American cities and people streamed through exhibitions displaying objets d'art whilst the richest clamoured to purchase antiquities of questionable legality. By the time that Carter was uncovering the treasures of Tutankhamun, Egypt was a British colony in all but name, and the scientific study of Egyptology had reached a certain degree of maturity. A system to translate the ancient hieroglyphs that had been a stumbling block for so long had been in place for over a century, and French, British, Italian, German and American academics had managed to shine a new light on the country's ancient history as scientists and archaeologists poured into the country in the wake of the colonial armies. From the New York Times to H.P. Lovecraft and Arthur Conan Doyle, 
paranoid, orientalist stories of Egypt that painted it as an exotic world of the other, saturated publishing, spawning from within the pages of gothic horror that were so often serialised in newspapers and magazines throughout the 19th century. Lost in a Pyramid, or The Mummy's Curse, written by American author Louisa May Alcott and published in 1869, the very same year that the Suez Canal opened, greatly facilitating trade with the East, was the first of a wave of stories stressing the supernatural dangers of tomb exploration. After becoming lost deep within a pyramid, two incognizant professors wind up burning the mummy of a powerful sorceress on their cobbled-together signal fire, but not before they pocket a small collection of souvenirs to take home with them, including a small box of seeds. As the flowers are grown, they poison those nurturing them and gradually sap them of their life, fulfilling the sorceress's warning that she would curse anyone who disturbs her grave. And so, stories of Carter's canary dying from a cobra bite, or members of the Tutankhamun dig winding up dead from unknown disease, were not really so hard to believe for the enthusiastic audience primed for such tales. In fact, although undeniably the most famous, it was not the first time a real-life curse had crept out of Egypt and wound its way to British shores. In room 62 of the British Museum, an inconspicuous wooden coffin lid lay on display, catalogued as object number 22542. Its story was a winding collection of truth and fiction that weaved 19th-century Egyptian Gothic horror with Orientalist romanticism and attributed tens potentially even hundreds or maybe thousands of deaths to its extraction from Egypt, decades before Carter's candlelight sparkled on the golden funerary mask of Tutankhamun. Thomas Douglas Murray was born in London in 1841. The son of a reverend, his father Thomas Boyles Murray, was incumbent of the parish of St Dunstan in the east, an area with a large church whose ruins stand today in the centre of a public garden, midway between London Bridge and the Tower of London. Well cared for and well educated, Thomas graduated from the prestigious rugby school before enrolling at Exeter College in the University of Oxford. A true socialite and every part the Victorian gentleman, he mixed with artists and authors in the most well-to-do circles of West London, where he lived on the corner of Portland Place, a block away from the Chinese embassy whose ambassador he counted as a close personal friend. Able to converse with the bohemian crowds on matters of sport, travel and art, he dabbled in breeding both horses and dogs and was an elected member of the Royal Geographical Society, within which he developed a keen interest in amateur archaeology and, like many at the time, felt a certain pull towards Egypt. Already a seasoned global traveller, his passion for archaeology led him to start visiting Egypt in the latter half of the 1860s in order to indulge his interests and escape the cold British winters. Far from slumming it about in car keys, Thomas was much more akin to a pampered tourist, boating down the Nile and attending bird shoots. In one travel journal that he published in the weekly sporting magazine Land and Water in 1869, he describes his boat, equipped with a piano and a fully stocked wine cellar, carrying him along the river, the landscape surrounding him, sufficiently weird, silent and mysterious for the repose of Egypt's greatest dead. He visited the mummy pits, mass graves containing the desiccated bodies of the lower-class poor of Egyptian society, often pillaged by travellers looking to capitalise on the European fascination with creating health products from the ground-up bones of mummified corpses 
and he delighted in shooting dead the bats who made the pits their homes. Their ill-omened wings, he said, nestled in the ceiling. On one occasion, his souvenir from these pits was a mummified foot which he carried back to England. Macabre as it may seem, it was quite the collectible back in the 19th century, where rich diplomats and social royalty would host unwrapping parties, placing an untouched mummy in the centre of the room, whilst the body would be unrolled for pure entertainment. The insatiability for the dried-out corpses was such that Egyptian hawkers would collect mummies from any mass pit that they could find and transport them to more traditional and grandiose tombs, where they would be presented to rich foreigners for high prices. Naturally, Thomas Douglas Murray was keen to get in on the act, and he sought a mummy of his own. As I was anxious to take back to England a good mummy, we at once proceeded to business and agreed the next day to start with the consul's son to see the opening of a mummy case near Daya El Bari. However, before we left the consul's house, we were informed there was something for our inspection on the premises, and in an upstairs room was produced a very richly ornamented mummy case with its mummy complete. This, Mustafa told us, he intended for the Prince of Wales on his visit to Thebes. This is likely how Thomas Douglas Murray wound up buying object number 22542 on a later trip. A yellowing, ornately painted inner coffin lid, known as a mummy board, standing 168.5 centimetres in length, 38 centimetres across and 12 centimetres deep, and constructed of wood and plaster. The top half bore the familiar androgynous facsimile of a female face, with an elaborate collar covering the upper half of its body. Its hands crossed over its chest, whilst the lower half was a series of hieroglyphic religious scenes, including baboons worshipping the sun, Osiris, and the names of several protective deities. The body that the board originally covered remains unnamed within the writings on the case, though from the quality of the board it's confidently assumed that whoever it was was a woman and a member of the priesthood. These deductions led Sir Ernest Wallace Budge Egyptologist and keeper of the Egyptian gallery in the British Museum during the late 19th and early 20th centuries, to name her the Priestess of Amun-Ra, after the women who participated in the rituals of the Temple of Amun-Ra in Thebes, where it was initially thought to have been discovered. The transaction for the board was likely very simple, sold by an enterprising Egyptian and exported with a dubious degree of legality and ethical consideration both of which would have been conveniently overlooked for the wealthiest or most titled travellers. The mummy board legend writes it somewhat differently, however, and though the tale varies somewhat depending on the account, in general it tells of how Douglas Murray was visiting a mummy pit or tomb one day with a group of friends, all graduates from Oxford, when they were offered a collection of antiquities to purchase. The mummy board being the most spectacular with its face filled with a cold malignancy of expression unpleasant to witness, straws were drawn to see who would be the one to purchase the board. The winner was Thomas Douglas Murray, and a fee of several thousand pounds was happily handed over, and the board was wrapped up and transported back to his hotel. In later years, the transaction took place within the mummy's tomb itself, and a further embellishment tagged on the hieroglyphic warning daubed on the walls above the mummy that read, Awake from your prostration and the ray of your eyes will annihilate all those who want to take possession of you. One addition that was all but guaranteed to be untrue. What is true is that Thomas Douglas Murray took possession of the board and shipped it to England, where he planned to flip it at auction 
for a healthy profit. The purchase of the mummy board marked the beginning of what was to become a tale of untold tragedy as the priestess of Amun-Ra supposedly enacted her vengeful curse. The priestess was exceptionally quick to get started too. Following a rough night where he had been tormented by a dream of being a prisoner in Turkey with a date with a firing squad, Thomas Douglas Murray shot himself with his own gun as he was returning to his hotel from a quail shoot. The lead shattered his right arm and with the accident occurring in a remote location, he was forced to instruct one of the servants in the construction of a tourniquet in order to stop him from bleeding to death before he was able to reach a hospital in Cairo. Though his life was saved, his arm was not and the surgeons were forced to amputate. The gun that had caused the wound had previously been marked as dangerous and was known to go off half-cock, but had somehow, inexplicably, found its way into the day's arsenal. Douglas Murray's arm was just the beginning of the tragedy for this particular trip, however, and within a year, two other members of the party, an unnamed Mr Y and his similarly anonymous tutor, both passed away within weeks. Back in Egypt, Two of the servants that had allegedly transported the mummy board had both wound up dead within the year, though no explanation of their particular deaths have ever been detailed outside of simply stating it as poverty or a gunshot. Immediately fearing the curse, and after already having lost his arm, Douglas Murray is then said to have passed the mummy board over to one of his fellow travellers named Arthur Wheeler. Exactly when Wheeler came into possession of the board is up for some debate, is there exists three distinct paths to the story that branch off around this time and reconnect once the board is back in England. In the first branch, Douglas Murray wins the lot and hands the board over to Wheeler after the shooting accident. But in the second branch, it's Wheeler that wins the drawing of lots and takes possession of the mummy board in Egypt, with Douglas Murray settling for the purchase of a vase. Here, the first and second branches reconvene and continue the story back in England. The third branch sees Douglas Murray win the lot and retain possession of the mummy board, shipping it back to his home in London, where he unpacked it, placing it on display in his parlour. Over time, he never quite felt right about the board, and he'd harboured some suspicion and a certain degree of paranoia about his potential curse. When a journalist asked to borrow the artefact, he actually felt such relief when it departed his home that he made the move permanent by handing it over to Arthur Wheeler, who, in this version of events, had lost the drawing of lots back in Egypt, but he was only too happy to take it on now. This is not before the unnamed female journalist befell her own tragedy, and while she was in possession of the board, she was said to have seen her mother fall down the stairs and break her hip, shortly after dying of ill health. Her collection of prized dogs all fell ill, forcing them to be put down, and finally her own health suffered as she became ill with an unspecified wasting disease. However the mummy board spent his time travelling back to England, once there, the main focus of the story falls onto Wheeler, who, in all stories, goes on to lose his fortune, accumulated from years of business, by embarking on a lengthy and unsuccessful string of gambling binges that ultimately bankrupted him. Struggling to find his feet, Wheeler travelled to America, where he hoped he would be far enough away from the racetrack to avoid any further temptations, and attempted to start a fresh chapter, purchasing a cotton plantation. Unfortunately, it was not to be a happy end for Wheeler, whose partner soon left him, taking with her a great deal of money that they had slowly begun to save. The next year, floods destroyed his crops, and the year after that, they burnt to the ground following a freak fire. Eventually left with nothing, 
He was forced to dissolve the family estate and place the vast majority of his possessions, including the mummy board, into a warehouse, which is where it stayed until his sister, Mrs Warwick Hunt, pulled it out and took possession of it sometime around the mid to late 1880s, displaying it in her own home just outside London. It is here where the mummy board has a brush with the infamous Madame Blavatsky. Helena Petrovna Blavatsky was a Russian mystic, spirit medium and co-founder of the Theosophical Society, an esoteric religious movement established in New York City in 1875. The society espoused much of the mysticism that Madame Blavatsky had already become famous for, describing itself as an uncertain body of seekers after truth who endeavour to promote brotherhood and strive to serve humanity. As vague as that may have sounded, it was essentially a spiritualist belief system with a particular interest in the study of the occult that harboured aspirations of advancing all of humanity in order to bring them in line with the advanced spiritual beings that walk the earth under the guise of teachers known as theosophists or the masters of the ancient wisdom. If this is all starting to sound a little bit wacky, then you'll be pleased to know that even in the late 19th century, her ideas were controversial and for every devout follower, she had an equally outspoken critic that called her out as a fraud. It appears that Wheeler's sister, Mrs Warwick Hunt, was at least as much of a socialite as her brother and had been running in circles that were friendly with Madame Blavatsky, who attended one of her parties shortly after she had taken possession of the board. The moment that Madame Blavatsky noticed the mummy board, she pounced on the opportunity for drama and exclaimed to Mrs Warwick Hunt that it was an item of utmost danger and had been the source of a most malignant influence in the room. Mrs Hunt shrugged the warning off, perhaps less of a believer of Madame Blavatsky's ideas, she took the woman's ravings down to silly superstition and continued her days living with the board on display. Shortly after the run-in with Madame Blavatsky, in September of 1887, Mrs Hunt arranged for the mummy board to be transported to a Baker Street photographer in order to have its photograph taken for the benefit of an Egyptologist who had offered to help translate the hieroglyphics that decorated the entire bottom half of the board. The photographer completed the work but complained to Mrs Hunt upon delivery of the photograph that, while staring at the facsimile of the priestess, he had seen her actual human face within the wooden plaster staring back at him with an expression of singular malevolence. He even claimed to have captured the image on a glass plate, though Mrs Warwick Hunt described the photograph somewhat differently. I particularly wish to make it clear that the overshadowing entity in the photograph was not that of a woman but that of a man. The head rose considerably above that of the priestess, and the limbs extended beyond and all around the outline of the mummy case upon the photograph. When she showed this photograph to Madame Blavatsky, she was convinced that it was the image of one of the advanced astral spirits that she was so keen to introduce to the world, and she may have had more luck at doing so if she had been able to use the photograph as proof. Unfortunately, shortly after they were developed, the image of the man's face began to fade until there was nothing left but an ordinary photograph of the mummy board and its face of carved wood. Some time after completing the work, the photographer too met his fate, under painful circumstances following the dissolution of his business. The translator too didn't last long, and two weeks after he had completed the translation and returned the photograph, he took himself off to his country retreat and shot himself in the face. Even the courier who had transported the mummy board to the photographer's office fell foul of the curse, dying himself two weeks later from brain fever. 
With the board back in her possession, Mrs Hunt now too began to feel the wrath of the mummy board's curse, and she began to suffer from terrible anxiety and ill health. Potentially fearing for her life, and suddenly finding Madame Blavatsky's advice much more pertinent, she liaised with Wheeler, who suggested that she donate it to the British Museum. In 1889, she contacted Ernest Wallace Budge, the keeper at the Department of Egyptian and Assyrian Antiquities in the British Museum, and handed over the mummy board of the priestess of Amun-Ra, along with nine small mummified crocodiles, a vase made of an ostrich egg, a textile bag, and a mummified human hand, complete with a ring on one of its desiccated fingers, ornately decorated with a scarab beetle. With the mummy board out of our possession, Mrs Warwick Hunt let out a sigh of relief, considering the matter of the curse closed. It was, of course, not to be the case. Once inside the museum, the mummy board was rumoured to have been the source behind several accidents that befell visitors to room 62, where it sat on prominent display behind a glass case. Most of them follow a similar pattern, like this example published in 1913. A party of ladies visited the museum in order to see the mummy case. Among them was a young lady belonging to a distinguished family well known in the world of fashion as well as of politics. With the light-heartedness of youth, she danced in front of the mummy's portrait and made grimaces at it, defying it to do its worst. In the museum itself, she met with an accident which prevented her from appearing at her own coming-out party and kept her to the house for a considerable period. Another story ended with Lady Beatrice Gascoigne Cecil, the very well-to-do wife of a British politician, falling down the staircase shortly after visiting the Egyptian room, breaking her neck and dying in the accident. A letter sent to Douglas Murray in 1911, signed Winifred Gordon, also tells of a series of unfortunate events that happened to both her and her brother shortly after visiting the mummy board in the museum. You asked me for a short account of the disasters that befell us after coming with the influence of the mummy in the British Museum. First, I must tell you that we were a family of seven brothers and five sisters. Captain Bertram Dixon was staying with me on his return from the Persian frontier where he had been as a military consul at Van for four years, years packed with revolutions, political excitements and expeditions into the unknown part of the country, mapping and exploring. During these expeditions, he had found several interesting old rings, necklaces, etc., and it was to show these to Professor Wallace Budge that he went to the British Museum. The thought of seeing the mummy never entered our heads, and although I knew all about her, I had no idea that Dr Budge's office was in the same part of the building as the mummy's. The attendant, however, pointed her out while we waited, and I examined her with interest and real sympathy. Within six weeks, I was badly wrecked on the Albanian coast on a clear night. Though wet, there was no storm, and yet we ran with a fearful crash which shot us out of our berths at 11.30 at night onto the great cliffs of Attica. The boats were not lowered for an hour, and indescribable confusion prevailed. Not trusting myself to them, I clambered onto the towering cliffs and clung there with some others, one leg and hands cut and bleeding and wet to the skin, till a passing steamer saw our signals of distress and picked us up at two o'clock the next day. My brother's case was worse. A now well-known aviator, he took it up shortly after his visit to the museum and at first met with great success, his pluck and skill enabling him to clear the boards at all the big French meetings. On October the 1st, whilst flying at the Milan meeting, another aeroplane, going faster than his, tried to pass over him, and at the height of 170 feet, both fell crashing to the ground. The other man escaped with a scratch. My brother was terribly injured. 
It took them 20 minutes to dig him out to debris, happily unconscious. While he was ill in hospital, the bank in which all of his money was deposited went smash and ruined him. Nothing happened to any other members of the family who did not come in contact with the mummy case, several of whom were travelling and might have come in for adventures. One, for instance, was elephant shooting in Malay. There was also a story of an artist who attempted to draw the mummy board on four different occasions, each time meeting with a violent accident. The fourth, seeing him run down by a horse and car as he left the museum. The Egyptian department drew in several well-known figures in the occult world, all interested in the potential for exotic hauntings and cursings hailing from the Orient. The ghost hunter, Elliot O'Donnell, who published a book documenting the haunted houses of London in 1909, actually claimed to have been possessed by the spirit of the priestess after studying the Egyptian room in the British Museum. He described feeling something pass through the glass case and attach itself to his side. He then spent two weeks on a psychedelic trip around London, saturated with paranoid visions of ancient Egypt, like some kind of technicolour double exposure. I was continually seeing strange dark faces, all of them Egyptian, both in colouring and cast and features, peeping at me from behind curtains or peering down at me from over balustrades and always with the same baffling and peculiar enigmatical expression in their long and glittering eyes. O'Donnell was not the only ghost hunter involved with the mummy either. The famous Chiro, otherwise known as Count Louis Hammond, or simply William John Warner to his parents, was a well-known author of books on occultism in the early 20th century. A clairvoyant with a special flair for palmistry, numerology and astrology, he was frequently called upon to read the futures of the day's top stars, including Mark Twain, General Kitchener and Oscar Wilde. In Chiro's own account of the mummy, he claims to have added the palm of Douglas Murray himself to his long list of clients, and furthermore, he claimed that as he touched his right hand, it spoke to him and offered up a prophecy of a smoking gun and of an amputated arm. Many years before Douglas Murray had even begun wintering in Egypt, Chiro supposedly told him of how he would lose his right arm to a misfired gunshot. As Douglas Murray laughed this vision away, Chiro then had a second vision. In spite of his cheerful banter, another picture formed clearly and distinctly in my mind. At first it took only the shape of an oblong object that looked decidedly like a coffin. Suddenly, strange hieroglyphics appeared and it stood out as an Egyptian sarcophagus with a carved figure on the lid. Don't touch it, I could hear myself saying. I beg of you, don't touch it. If you do, it will bring misfortune to you and all others who have anything to do with it. Unfortunately, the two men laughed the whole event off and it was given no more thought, which is perhaps the biggest tragedy, given how many lives could have been saved if there was any truth to the tale at all. All of these events, so far, were small fry, however, when compared to the most famous disaster attributed to the curse of the priestess of Amun-Ra, the ancient sorcerer's coup de grace with the sinking of the Titanic. The infamous sinking of the largest ship the world has ever seen on the 15th of April 1912 was huge news around the world. So naturally, the folklore of the unlucky mummy was quick to get involved and it all revolved around the journalist and editor William Stead who had published the story of the mummy board in 1909 and was said to have spent his final dinner aboard the Titanic retelling the story to an eager table of socialites. Later that night, it was Stead who urged the chamber orchestra to play out their final rendition of Nearer My God to Thee as the ship sank beneath the waves. 
As stories of the final dinner crept out of the saturating tabloid coverage of the ship's sinking, the mummy board somehow wound up aboard the ship itself, locked away in its hold, on its way to a private collector in New York who had bought the artefact from the British Museum. The museum was said to have finally become sick and tired of the curse and its continual danger to museum's visitors and took the offer from the collector immediately. The collector soon realised his folly, however, when the curse wrecked havoc upon his life, leading him to eventually send it back to the museum, this time aboard the ocean liner the Empress of Ireland, which embarked upon its journey to Liverpool in 1914. As one might expect, the ship never made it to the British port, and when it collided with another ship, it sank to the bottom of the seabed in just 14 minutes, taking along with her over 1,000 passengers. Unbelievably, this shipwreck was not the final time the mummy board would find itself on a sinking ship, and finally, one year later, in 1915, the curse put an end to another 1,200 lives aboard the Lusitania, whose hold it had been stored in as it carried the priestess back to Egypt by order of the museum, who had been hoping that in restoring the piece to its homeland, the curse might finally cease. If all of this might seem to stretch credulity, then consider the branch of the tale which suggests that after the sinking, the mummy board was placed for auction and bought by a German collector who presented it to the German Kaiser, allowing the curse to set the wheels in motion for the beginning of the First World War. Of course, this didn't really happen. But then, almost none of this story really happened. When looking at the story of the curse of the priestess of Amun-Ra, one of the very first things worth realising is that it shifts and moves over time, constantly evolving and often in contradictory ways. Probably one of the original progenitors of the story, Thomas Douglas Murray, gradually removed himself from the origin story, distancing himself from the purchase and placing it in Wheeler's hands, which is one example of how one of the most fundamental points of the story, who actually bought the board, so quickly comes into debate. Interestingly, for the first 15 years of its life in the British Museum, the story of the mummy board's curse was strictly oral, with much of the groundwork to convert it into a credible rumour laid by Thomas Douglas Murray himself. A member of the Ghost Club, a private and somewhat secret gentleman's circle where its high-class spiritualist members got together monthly, dined and retold stories related to their personal paranormal experiences, Douglas Murray retold the story of the mummy board and its curse on several occasions before the story saw any wider publication. At the same time, Douglas Murray contacted Ernest Wallace Budge at the British Museum on several different occasions to inquire on the beliefs of Egyptians concerning the afterlife, spirits, and whether or not there was any evidence to suggest that the ancient Egyptians held any folklore beliefs concerning hauntings and curses. From these accounts, it seems safe to assume that Douglas Murray held some level of spiritualist belief, and seemingly he gave the curse story a degree of credibility. How much of it was down to his beliefs, however, and how much of it was purely because he felt he had a good yarn to tell, is anyone's guess. With his missing arm showing the consequences of the curse in plain sight, the story would have been powerful, and no doubt, quite convenient. The curse's first big public outing came in July 1904, when Bertram Fletcher Robinson published a story on the cursed mummy board in the Daily Express, of which he was the editor. The story ran with the headline, A Priestess of Death. The priestess's story, it said, was as bad as any published by Edgar Allan Poe. 
the piece concluded with the curse presumably ending once the mummy board had taken its rightful place amongst the ancient queens and princesses of equal rank within the British Museum. However, when Robinson died three years later, the rumours quickly cycled back around to the curse, suggesting that his death was proof that the curse was still alive and well. Robinson's passing, after writing of the story, reignited it in the public eye for a short time, and whilst short pieces had made it over to American shores following his 1904 piece, it would be another two years before the curse story would truly break globally. In 1909, the story was given the full front page of the British Pearson's magazine, a monthly periodical that published writings on politics, literature and art, and was not shy of spicing things up with stories of the strange. The August edition, in 1909, came complete with a full colour photograph of the priestess's face on the front cover, with the article headlined, The Mysterious Mummy. The story ran over a full 11 pages. Here, the mummy board's life in the museum had notably changed from the 1904 article, and there were now countless anecdotes from visitors to the Egyptian room who had wound up victims of the curse. In the same year, journalist and close friend of Douglas Murray, William Stead, syndicated a story of the mummy globally, giving it front-page column inches in many American newspapers under various headlines, such as Ghost of Mummy Haunts British Museum, Must Go Now, For 30 Years, Egyptian Priestess Has Spelled Disaster. Whilst the story largely conformed to the same details printed in Pearson's magazine and the earlier Robinson story, it was notably more bombastic in its language. I heard today a very startling report which... However, I am not unprepared for. It is stated that on account of the number of accidents that have occurred to visitors to the Egyptian room of the British Museum, the famous mummy case lid of the royal priestess of Amun-Ra will shortly be removed from the room where it has been exhibited for several years. Thereby hangs a tale, a gruesome tale, which but for the fact that the truth of all the incidents is perfectly well authenticated, would be scouted by rational beings as a more preposterous story than any found in Arabian Nights. The malignant mummy of the British Museum had bestowed fatalities and tragedies upon any and all who had dared to offend the ireful shade of the priestess. Amusingly, two of the most dramatic stories the piece can muster are those of a young girl spraining her ankle as she left the museum and of another fracturing her elbow in a fall. Nevertheless, the story cemented the mummy board's place in folklore. In 1911, shortly after the death of Douglas Murray, the story was once again published by O'Donnell in his book Haunted Houses of London, and then two years later by the spiritualist and psychic Ada Goodrich Freer, who wrote a long piece for the Occult Review. Goodrich Freer's piece differed slightly from the rest in that she claimed to have been writing the piece with the express permission of Douglas Murray, given before his death, to tell the story in full. Before he had died, he had supplied the journalist with a handful of letters and diaries that documented the story and helped Goodrich Freer to pepper it with some personal accounts that helped to add depth to the cursed lore. Ironically, the piece with the best access to legitimate sources was written for the publication with probably the least credibility. In the same issue as the mummy board story was another piece claiming to have evidence for the city of Atlantis. In her conclusion, Ada Goodrich Freer even makes a half-hearted attempt at scepticism by broaching the subject of coincidence. The question of coincidence plays a very important part in the study of all physical phenomena. In course of time, however, the stage is reached when we are disposed to say that the coincidences in this or that story are in excess of what we are accustomed to regard as chance. 
The question is, when do we reach that stage? Interestingly, she never questions if the stories were ever true in the first place. She also hints at the first signs of a conspiracy, suggesting that the British Museum denies stories of the curse in order to cover up the vast number of violent and tragic accidents linked to its exhibits. Following this piece, there is then a brief respite in publication of the curse's story, until, of course, the boom in interest with the discovery of the tomb of Tutankhamun, and shortly after, the death of Lord Carnarvon. With tales of curses circulating widely, the priestess of Amun-Ra is brought up over and over again as proof that such curses exist. Perhaps the most famous to speak about the mummy board in this era was the Sherlock Holmes author, Arthur Conan Doyle, who gave an interview to a journalist at the Daily Express on the day after the death of Lord Carnarvon, explaining that an evil elemental had likely been the cause of his passing, linking it to the death of Robinson in 1907 and offering the paper an opportunity to run out the story once more. The death of Mr Fletcher Robinson was caused by Egyptian elementals guarding a female mummy because Mr Robinson had begun an investigation of the stories of the mummy's malevolence. I warned Mr. Robinson against concerning himself with the mummy at the British Museum. He persisted, and his death occurred. He became engrossed in the subject, and wrote several articles for the Daily Express. I told him he was tempting fate by pursuing his inquiries, but he was fascinated and would not desist. Then he was overtaken by illness. The immediate cause of death was typhoid fever. But that is the way in which the elementals guarding the mummy might act. In 1926, Henry Ryder Haggard, a prolific adventure fiction author with a pension for exotic locales, published his autobiography and included the Mummy Board Curse story, originally related to him by Ernest Wallace Budge, who had been a close personal friend. This rendition is interesting in that it details the handover of the Mummy Board to the British Museum, though the donator is a man, presumably Arthur Wheeler, and not his sister, who is actually documented to have carried out the donation though it does give a little bit more backstory behind Wheeler, including that he lost his money not just in gambling, but in a bad investment when a bank in China went bust. With the excitement of Tutankhamun finally simmering down, the accounts of the cursed mummy board do quiet down too, and it wasn't until 1946 when they are republished, this time in Montague Summer's book Witchcraft and Black Magic. The English clergyman and scholar blames the desecration of tomb raiding for the persistence of such curses, summarising that there can be no surprise felt that those who are bold enough to disturb the holy sleep of the departed should be visited with swift and relentless retribution. With each new publication, more gossip and rumour has been given to the story. It has grown and evolved over time, sometimes in contradicting and confusing ways as each new author has added their own take. When one looks at facts, they are few and far between, especially as most retellings are careful not to give details specific enough to be checked, and when they are, they seldom tend to hold up. No photograph, for example, exists showing the phantom face emanating from the mummy board that was supposedly captured by the Baker Street photographer, and Lady Beatrice Gascoigne Cecil, one name who is firmly attached to the story, supposedly fatal, can be seen alive and well in a portrait taken in 1925. The mummy board was certainly never aboard the Titanic and has never been in America. It left the British Museum in 1990 to be shown in two exhibits in Australia and took a four-year tour of various museums in Japan, Korea, Taiwan and Hong Kong 
between 2003 and 2007. His last adventure was in 2015 to a museum in Singapore. But aside from these very few excursions, the artefact has never left the museum and was definitely never aboard any sinking ships. And as far as being sold to a German who handed it over to the Kaiser, the story was all a concoction, measured out by Egyptologist Margaret Murray, who purposefully started the rumour in order to prove that the absurd stories attached to Egyptian artefacts were nothing but wild tales of curses. Ironically, her own rumour eventually wound up amalgamated into the law of the priestess of Amun-Ra. Finally, when looking at the curse of the mummy board, one has to pay attention to the man who spent the most time with the artefact, the keeper of the Egyptian room in the British Museum, Ernest Wallace Budge. Wallace Budge never entertained the story for a moment, and he spent a great deal of time and effort replying in the negative to the endless inquiries made to the museum concerning the curse over the years. He was always quite straightforward with his words, and his stance can probably best be summed up with his response to one inquiry asking him about the accidents that had occurred in the museum over the years, to which he replied, No credence is attached here to the fanciful stories told about the object. Even if this is the case, and Wallace Budge is not masterminding a giant conspiracy, as suggested by Ada Goodrich Freer, one cannot deny that the story has had an incredible longevity, constantly adapting to new situations that have helped to keep it relevant across generations. With the intense blurring of fact and fiction that has gone on over the years, rumour has been cemented into a weird form of truth. Perhaps it is better to focus on another quote from the psychic journalist when considering the story of the priestess of Amun-Ra. Concluding her article on the mummy board for the Occult Review, Ada Goodrich Freer simply wrote that The truth is personal to the mind that thinks it. So that was the story of the cursed mummy board, the unlucky mummy. And we'll be back to talk about that after these short advert breaks. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Getting to know yourself can be a lifelong process, especially because we're always growing and changing. Therapy is all about deepening your self-awareness and understanding. Sometimes we just don't know what we want or why we react the way we do until we talk through things. BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who can take you on a journey of self-discovery from wherever you are. I've personally been using BetterHelp for for a while now and uh, I found it a a massive benefit. Uh, I've I've always thought, to be honest, that therapy is is a great benefit to anyone. I've visited a therapist a few times in my life, uh, mainly for anxiety issues, but I always find it interesting how you tend, like, like I visit a therapist for anxiety issues and I come out quite often learning something completely different just from having that that sort of other perspective and talking through things so you know i genuinely do think that therapy can be a a really good benefit to just about anyone it's brilliant for helping to learn positive coping skills how to set boundaries and you know just empowering yourself as well because you know if you can understand things then obviously that gives you the power to deal with them and you know, in in a way that is healthy. Um, so yeah, as I say, I've been using BetterHelp and I found it uh, really interesting. I really like the fact that it's completely online. Um, you know, it's, it's really convenient. It's literally designed to be convenient. 
and that's its kind of major selling point, I guess. I totally really enjoy actually the the flexibility of it um, and the fact that I can do it in my own home as well, which is quite comfortable because therapy is a difficult thing. It can be intimidating to start, especially. So to do it in your own home, I think is a, is a nice um, way to sort of ease yourself into it. To get started with BetterHelp is, is really easy. You just fill out a, a brief questionnaire and then it matches you with a licensed therapist who you, you can switch therapists at any time if you're uh, not feeling the vibe of the current therapist and, and that's no additional charge at all. So yeah, I, I think, you know, if you're thinking of starting therapy, it's definitely worth giving BetterHelp a try. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash darkhistories today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash darkhistories, all one word. Nice one. Cheers. Today's episode also brought to you by Vessi Footwear. Do you need a pair of rubber boots in the winter, but you just don't want to wear hideous looking rubber boots? Yeah, me too, because I have to walk my dog in the rain in English spring and winter and my feet are just get soggy as anything and it's horrible. But Vessi here to save the day. Vessi footwear, they make shoes that are just like rubber boots, but they're just essentially built into a sneaker. 100% waterproof not water resistant it's fully waterproof they're warm light and comfortable just like trainers they slip on and off i I keep mine by my front door literally like so that when i stumble out at like six in the morning to take my dog out for a walk i just slip them on don't have to deal with laces or any of that nonsense which is you know at six in the morning for me it's a challenge just breathing so laces are pretty much a no-go and they've got decent chunky soles as well, so you're not going to skid around on any frost, uh, which again is pretty important in the climate that I live in. So apparently this future material they're made from is called Dymatex. It's a super soft knit material, apparently, that keeps your feet warm in the cold but cool in the warmer months because it breathes as well, which is nice, you know, so it sort of doesn't really look waterproof and it doesn't, really, you know, it doesn't have like dorky waterproof kind of vibes. They just look like regular shoes, but they're waterproof. It's basically shoes from the future. Like I say, for me, they're like perfect for when I walk the dog and they're, they're, they are my go-to like dog walking shoes because seriously, in England for the last, I don't know, like maybe two months, it's, it's pretty much rained every single day at some point. So even when you think it's dry and you think, oh, brilliant, I'll take the dog out, it'll be dry. No, there's going to be puddles. It's going to be wet. It probably will rain before I get out there. So yeah, they've been brilliant for that. They've been my go-to like rain dog walking shoes, uh, especially walking through like long grass, which my dog tends to drag me through constantly. So yeah, like wet long grass, horrible in most shoes, but in Vessi's, no problem. So if you're interested in a pair of Vessi shoes, check out Vessi.com and you can use code DARKHISTORIES at checkout for 15% off your entire order. There's free shipping to Canada, US, Australia, Japan, Taiwan, Korea, Singapore. There's a good chance where you are, uh, you'll get free shipping. So yeah, check it out, vessi.com, and then code DARKHISTORIES at checkout for 15% off of your entire order. Cheers. Welcome back. So yeah, the story of the unlucky mummy, object number 22542. This is probably the most fun I've had uh, making an episode in quite a while. And it's 
That's not that I don't enjoy doing dark histories. I absolutely love doing every single episode. But this sort of research is what I really, really like the most, where you get this tangled story that's just this web of nonsense and copy and paste and just absolute unsubstantiated rumour. And it's all untangled and you've just got to like pull it all apart, lay it out there and like really examine it. And and I love doing that. It's sort of weirdly satisfying to trace it backwards. It and it is is essentially a fascinating exercise in filtering bullshit, basically, and and digging deep. But what I find really fascinating about it is when you're doing that, you could be tempted to give skeptical sources more credence for some reason because you know they're skeptical, uh, but. Interestingly, they get things equally as wrong and, you know, because they're sort of pushing so hard to claim that it's all false, they'll just throw out any old nonsense despite the fact that it's not true. And, and, and a really good example of that uh, is that um, there there was one source that I found that, that was saying that it was all false and it, and it said that he didn't even, there's no evidence to suggest that Douglas Murray had shot his arm off, right? But it was clear that he did because his brother actually wrote an account of him only having one arm and of having it shot off in Egypt in his memoirs so you know outside of I mean there was other things as well but that's a pretty glaring error and you know so I I found that really interesting because like I say like when you are doing this you are tempted sometimes to look at the skeptical side of things and think oh yeah that's okay yeah I don't need to check that but you absolutely do you have to check it all and it's just fascinating but yeah, about the story itself, the first branch off I, I found was interesting, uh, where Thomas Douglas Murray suggested it was Wheeler who bought the case and essentially sort of puts everything at an arm's distance from him. But I found this really fascinating because as stories went on, they all tend to blur this initial section of who bought the case, who bought the mummy board and, and who bought it back to England. And I wondered how intentional that was because obviously buying it and bringing it back to England was, you know, I mean, to call it a grey area is is probably a bit of a push. It was, you know, wrong. Like it was, I mean, morally and ethically it was wrong. And I think at the time it was legally sort of wrong. I think, I'm not sure. I don't think by this point they'd, they'd actually sort of stamped any hard rules, but there were guidelines and you weren't supposed to take artifacts out of the country so you know i find it really interesting that this section of it that has sort of moral and legal ramifications perhaps is i think intentionally obscured and essentially say essentially douglas murray putting it at arm's length i think makes him the prime candidate so that's i I sort of believe that branch that he he probably bought it and uh, i also think he probably bought it back to england as well but I, I think it's him putting it at arm's length is uh is um yeah probably the probably the I I've lost my train of thought because I just realised that I you know I'm not being sarcastic by saying at arm's length because he's only got one arm you know pun not intended um but anyway yeah that that's that there's another one of the other sort of really difficult elements of of doing this as well is that. Almost all of the stories are completely unsubstantiated, right? And almost all of the stories are written in this quite careful way so as to give you enough 
detail to flesh it out in your mind and believe it, but not enough detail to actually check on it and verify if it's true. So, you know, it's always hints at who it might be, but it's impossible to find out who that person is. You can't even dig into the like other elements and, and, and sort of tie things together and say, oh, if this is of a high class lady that's such and such, I think that sounds like this person because this person was his friend because there's just not enough detail there. And it's quite cleverly done, like whether it's, it, and, I, and I guess this is how it's been so successful at, at lasting all these years is through this vagueness by being just enough, but not quite enough, you know, like just enough to be believable, but not quite enough to sort of uh, tell you anything of any truth. And like I said in the in the script, any bits that are given actual like hard facts with names and dates quite often don't just don't hold up. I, I thought it was really funny about the the story of the um the Gascoigne Cecil, Lady Gascoigne, I think that was her name, and uh, how you know she supposedly died from this curse, or or I think um doesn't actually say that she died, but it said that she came to like a really bad accident, like like basically like breaking her neck. But then I, I found a photograph of her taken like years later looking like completely healthy um so yeah there's that i think the other element i think of this which is interesting from a a sort of social history perspective is is the way that racism plays into the story and of course when you look at stuff like stories like this it's all sort of colonialism anyway and there are a lot of theories that say there's a, a lot of sort of like um colonial guilt that play into these stories but 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 I, th- I, th- I found this element interesting of how when it talks about the mummy's curse, the way it talks of the Egyptians was very different to the way it talked to sort of Europeans, um, you know, and, and and they quite often like it, it, you can see that it just tosses out stories of Egyptians dying by the handful and and they're given very little care as to like any detail. It's just, oh, this Egyptian died over here and that one died over there. And it's clear that it's because they just fall under a umbrella of foreigners. So you don't need to know, you know, like like and, and and I find this really interesting, like fascinating from like a colonial history perspective, I guess, like at a social history, you know, that that colonial mindset of sort of barbaric foreigners. Um, you know, it's also really interesting how the barbaric foreigners uh, are the ones that desecrated the graves, not the foreign, not not the travellers, not the Europeans buying the mummies and creating the market. No, no, they had nothing to do with it. They were just innocent, you know, uh, bystanders that were buying the mummies that were up for sale because, you know, why not? Uh, they're there after all, you know, and it completely removes any sense of fault from the like Europeans and the Westerners and, and, and lays it all on the barbaric Egyptians. Uh, and, and yeah, anyway, I found that just interesting the way that was such a, a pervasive um, form of uh, viewpoint, I guess. Uh, but yeah, I guess, you know, it shouldn't, shouldn't really be surprising. It's that colonial era, isn't it? But um, but yeah, I just thought, thought that was quite interesting to read. Um, you know, it's, it, they used it in a way that was very convenient to pad out the story with all these hundreds of deaths without really knowing. And, and well, I suppose knowing that people aren't really going to care to know their names or the details because, like I say, just foreign. That's all you need to know kind of thing. Um, but yeah, anyway, that's that story. I thought, it was, I thought it was interesting. I hope you enjoyed it. If you are interested in, in digging in deeper into this, I think I went a little bit more into that colonial guilt theory when I did the Tutankhamun episode. Um, but yeah, it, it is an interesting sort of theory. Um, 
But otherwise, yeah, thanks very much for listening. If you'd like to contact me, uh, you can do so. Contact at darkhistories.com is the email address. You can find links to that in the show notes or on the website, which is darkhistories.com. And in those show notes and on my website, you'll also be able to find ways in which you can support the podcast via like Patreon or sort of buying secondhand books uh, that the, the podcast needs, things like that. But, you know, you don't have to. It's free as well. But, you know, uh, any support is obviously like, you know, hugely gratefully received, even just leaving reviews. I know it's time out of your life. So, you know, I'm very grateful um, for anyone that, you know, does things like that. Um, it's because it, it, it's a huge support. And I know that, you know, it's time or potentially money, you know, out of your life um, that you sort of like throw into the void. So, you know, it's, that's, that's, you know, it's very kind. Anyway, enough of that waffle. Thanks very much for listening. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. Until then, take care and sleep tight. 